I heard of a book that was recommended to all of the conferees at the Shepherds Conference by a man by the name of David Klotfelter. Clot is in blood clot. Klotfelter. The name of the book is Sinners in the Hands of a Good God. And it is a marvelous book. You should buy it and you should read it. It's very readable. It is a book that is an attempt to define and reconcile divine justice from God and divine mercy. It's an attempt to understand the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. It's an attempt to delineate what Scripture says about the doctrines of sovereign grace. And it is a marvelous book. It's one of the finest books that I've ever read. And now I know why the Lord wanted me to read it. Because it forms a perfect introduction to the message this morning. As you know, we have been discussing for six parts in this series thus far, Death in Adam, Life in Christ. And for the six previous messages in this series, with part seven this morning, we've been endeavoring to understand the implications of Paul's words in Romans 5, 12 to 21. And from verses 15 to 21, we started the last time we studied Romans 5 to see four contrasts between death in Adam and life in Christ. And it was interesting for me to be reading in this particular book and to be reading a section like the following. If we are guilty, how can we be declared not guilty? If we are unrighteous, how can we be treated as righteous? The answer is that God views believers as united with Christ, standing in such a relationship to Him that He becomes their representative before God. Adam once stood as our representative, and by his disobedience all of us became sinners, not only in the sense that we are prone to sin, but also in the sense that the guilt of Adam's sin has been imputed to us, Romans 5.19. Now, however, we have a new representative, Jesus Christ. Unlike Adam, Jesus lived a perfectly holy life before God, keeping God's law in every detail. Further, in spite of His own moral perfection, Jesus died a sacrificial death for the expiation of sin and the propitiation of divine wrath. This was God's plan and purpose. His way of satisfying His justice. Christ's death allows God simultaneously to demonstrate His righteousness and justify those who are united to Christ by faith. God accepts Jesus' death as full payment for our sins and His righteousness as a substitute for our unrighteousness. God not only forgives us, He regards us as if we had perfectly fulfilled the requirements of His law. In another place, He says, God's justice does indeed require the punishment of sin. 
It is not true to say, as some do, that God is concerned only to destroy sin within us. We have sinned against God and deserve to be punished eternally. If God will not impute Christ's righteousness to us, but instead treats us as our sins deserved, then we are lost. He says also, in insisting that God cannot justly punish Christ in our place, some, in ignoring Paul's argument in Romans 5, 12 to 21, which develops the parallel between Christ and Adam. You know that I've been talking to you about this parallel, these two spheres of existence, these two great realities, death in Adam, life in Christ. David Klotfelter says, You and I did not take the forbidden fruit in Eden, but we are treated as if we did. Death, the punishment threatened to Adam, has come upon all his descendants. Plainly, in some very real way, God viewed Adam as representing all of us. And this, Paul says, is the key to understanding the manner in which Christ's righteousness becomes ours. Adam represented us and fell. Christ represents us and stands. Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all people. Christ's righteous life leads to justification and life for all who believe. In both cases, there is a union between the representative and those represented. And God deems this union sufficient to justify both the imputation of guilt, that's Adam, and the imputation of righteousness, that's Christ. We may not fully understand this arrangement, but it is not wise for us to argue with it. That is a perfect introduction to what I want to talk to you this morning about these four contrasts that the Apostle Paul lists here in Romans 5, verses 15 to 21. You follow along as I read. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life 
through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you were taking notes last time and your sermon notes, which are provided for you, you remember that the first of these four contrasts that we gave, contrasting death in Adam and life in Christ, was this. The contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation. And we saw that, didn't we, from verses 15 and 16. Paul says, but the free gift is not like the trespass, verse 15, for if many died through the one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. He goes on to say, and the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. You remember that I said to you that there in those two verses, verses 15 and 16, Paul asserts that even though Adam's sin is true, Christ's righteousness prevails. That even though Adam's sin and through Adam's sin all men die, including Adam, because of his first sin, much more, Paul says, has the free gift of salvation been given by the grace of God in Jesus Christ and it abounds to many who are the believers in Him. Do you see that phrase, much more, in verse 15? It's speaking there of the issue of degree. Degree. In other words, Paul is saying that to the degree that many died through Adam's one sin, his trespass against God's direct command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of of good and evil, in contrast to an even greater degree, much more, has the grace of God's free gift of salvation abounded to those who are in Christ. And what a contrast it is. What a contrast. In Adam's sin, we die. In Christ's life and gift, we're given grace. And it's not like the trespass of Adam at all. His trespass brought every man into a death-deserving relationship with God. And Christ's salvation brings believers into a freely gifted, grace-receiving relationship with God. What a turnaround. What a gift. What a contrast between death in Adam and life in Christ. I told you there are only two realities in the world. It's wonderful when someone like Paul the Apostle or any of the other Bible writers gives us the opportunity to reduce down to the lowest common denominator the realities of the world. And Paul says here in Romans 5, 12 to 21, there are only two realities, two headships, two representatives. That's all there are and that's all they'll ever be. It's either death in Adam or life in Christ. You either are condemned as a human being, as every single human being without distinction is condemned because of Adam's trespass, or you've been converted out of that trespassing situation because of the cross work of Christ into His life, under His headship, serving Him as Lord. And if sin and death is what Adam's trespass brought to all mankind, how much more Paul says, does this free gift of Christ 
bring believers and abounding grace. And please don't miss that free gift. The free gift of God. Christ's grace-giving because of what He did on the cross. And further, as Paul continues his argument in verse 16, he says that if Adam's one act of sin brought condemnation to those who are in him, how much greater is the justification of those in Christ who have not committed, notice verse 16, not just one trespass like Adam did, but many trespasses. You say, well, didn't Adam commit more than just one trespass? Yes. But it was the one trespass in the garden that plunged the whole human race into sin. And Paul wants to center in on that one sin. It was the one sin, the first sin of Adam that brought us into the condition that we're in. But it's also in Christ, what He did on the cross, that has given us the opportunity not just to have one trespass forgiven, but many, he says, many trespasses. What an incredible thing. We who are in Christ are so blessed. There couldn't be a greater contrast in the world than what Paul says here between Adam and Christ. For he says in Adam's sin, the entire world was brought into condemnation. But here, here's the great contrast. Through Christ's act of securing our salvation, those who've committed many, many trespasses against God have received instead of condemnation, justification. A declaration of not guilty. And, and that might be enough for Paul to say, here's the contrast. Here's what happened in Adam, but much more, here is what happens in Christ for everyone who believes. But he doesn't stop there. Look, he continues on in verse 17, and that's the second contrast. The contrast between Adam's death and Christ's life. Not just the contrast between Adam's sin and Christ's salvation, but the contrast between Adam's death and Christ's life. And if the first contrast is talking about degree, this is talking about consequence. Consequence. Notice verse 17. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's Adam, much more, there it is again, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. You see the obvious contrast that he's making there? To the degree that we've been delivered out of Adam's sin by virtue of Christ's salvation to a much more degree, he says in verse 17, have we been delivered out of the reign of death because of Adam being given righteousness as we reign in life through Jesus Christ. He's talking there about consequence, isn't he? That was the consequence of Adam's sin. We all died. That's what 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22 says. In Adam all die. That's the consequence of the sin for which our head, our representative, Adam, brought to us and even we brought to ourselves because he says in Romans 5, 12, all sinned in Adam. To the degree which Adam's sin now brings the whole of mankind into death. This death consequence reigns 
over everyone like a king over his kingdom. He's speaking of this word reign as though he's talking about sin like sin was the king, personified as a king, reigning over his entire kingdom. And who are subjects in his kingdom? Every single person. Because every single person will have the penalty, the consequence of death. And sin is a hard taskmaster. There's no way around it. There's no escape. There's nothing you can do. You can't be born into this world and you can't live in this world without sinning and sinning continually and sinning repeatedly. It's a part of your nature. It's a part of who you are. It's a part of who I am. Adam's sin is like a plague that infects every soul and tragically touches every soul with death. Isn't that why the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall what? Die. How many souls sin? Every soul. So every soul dies. That's the whole point of verses 12 to 14, wasn't it? Look back there. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. And you remember, someone might come along and say, but Paul, wait a minute. What about Moses' law? Wasn't that the only time where God could rightfully, justly condemn men when they knew what violations were because of the law? Paul says no, verse 13, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted when there is no law. In other words, it's not counted by way of a trespass, but there's still sin and there's still death, verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, even over those who didn't violate a specific law command, they still sinned and they still died. You remember I told you that everybody, save Enoch and maybe Elijah, if he was taken up in that chariot without dying, maybe, maybe without the Enoch and Elijah reference, even though obviously they still sinned. God may have been gracious, may have been picturing something there, but the bottom line is every single other person had the consequence of their sin, which was death. And that's exactly his point here in verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Death reigns. It's the inevitable consequence of sin. It's reigning is menacing. It's reigning is devastating. And remember I read to you a couple of weeks ago about the tsunami and the devastation that reigns in the death of all of those people that died So whether you're talking about death coming indirectly through a so-called disaster or you're talking about someone who dies directly as a result of their sin or they die because sin is in the world, because we're all cursed by it, little babies in infancy, those who have little mental capacity to consciously receive or reject Christ, all sinners die. People die in storms. Ravages of floods, hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis. You remember in Luke's Gospel, there was a tower in Siloam that fell and killed 18 people. And Jesus was asked a question. And He really never even asked the direct question, answered the direct question that they asked. 
What was his response? If you don't repent, you too will likewise perish. You know what he was doing? He was, he was reinforcing the issue that sin brings death. And it's not that one group of people, like those people, are any worse off than somebody else, and that's why they died. Jesus is teaching that all men are sinners and that all men are being warned every day and they may be warned by disaster and they may be warned by disease. They may be warned by the catching up of their own sin, by the confrontation of someone else. By whatever means, the issue is you and I are being warned. People are being warned about our sinfulness and how are we being warned? By death. We see it. We see it all around us. And that's a warning. What do we do at funerals? We talk about death. And we talk about the inevitability of it. And we talk about the consequence of it. And why do we do that? Because it brings us to the very mirror of our own mortality. It speaks to us of the fact that death is as a consequence of sin. And that's exactly what he's saying in verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. It's like a king. It's like a plague. It's like a disease. It's like a war. It gets every one of us. But notice his point. Much more. Much more than death reigning through Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. In other words, there's an answer to the reign of death. See, Paul is talking here not just as a pastor, not just as a missionary. He's talking here as an evangelist. He's talking as an evangelist. He's not just speaking to Roman believers. He's speaking to the church at Rome. And there are no doubt people in that very congregation who need to hear this. And they need to hear that, yes, death reigned through that one man. But much more will a life be reigning. What life? A life of righteousness through the one man, Jesus Christ. Well, how do I receive that? Paul says it's a free gift. It's a free gift. You mean I don't, have to, I don't have to work for it? No. I don't have to labor for it? No. I can't merit it? No. I can't do anything to receive it on my own? No. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. You want that free gift? Do you want that free gift? To, to a greater degree of the reigning of death as a consequence for my sin, I can substitute that with the free gift of God, which brings me righteousness, righteousness from God, which comes to me from Christ who died in my place, who died instead of my dying. Instead of the reign of death, I can have the reign of life. Do you want that kind of free gift? It's available. That's the reason he's teaching us this. He's not just saying this is true of you Roman believers. He's saying it's available even to unbelievers. To receive, he says, the abundance of grace. Not just a little grace. 
the abundance of grace. Notice what he said in the latter part of verse 15. That the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. It's abounding grace. I've seen churches called Grace Church or Grace Bible Church or Grace Community Church and they're emphasizing grace. But I've also seen some churches and I kind of like the idea who call themselves abundant grace or abounding grace because that's what it's saying here. God's grace is available by a free gift through Jesus Christ, and it's abounding for many. And it's not like the result or the consequence of one man's sin, because when he sinned, there was a judgment that followed, and that judgment brought condemnation. But the free gift, which follows many trespasses that we commit against God brings justification. And if death reigns through Adam, death in Adam, there is life in Christ. Free gift. Can't earn it. Can't do anything to receive it other than believe in Jesus Christ and what He did on that cross when He died, when He was buried, when He was raised again from the dead and you receive the free gift of righteousness. Who wants to receive that free gift? available. It's here. You can have it. (laughs) Who would be foolish enough to reject it? I'll tell you who. Somebody who likes their death-like state in Adam. And we talk to them every day, don't we? We see them all the time. And they may be even in our own families. And we say to ourselves, because the blinders have been taken off, because the spiritual cataracts from our eyes have been removed, because the free gift of grace that came to us regenerated us and caused us to look differently at these things, and they don't see those things, we see them and we say, how could they not make this conscious commitment? How could they not receive this free gift? They're in a death-like state. They're in Adam. I'm in Christ. How could they not see it? It's because of their sin. It's because of this reign of death that comes as a result of sin. They're following the first Adam. We're following the last Adam. You can have that super abounding grace. Do you see it? Do you hear the truth? Here's the choice. It's either the reign of death or the reign of life. It is either the sin which brings condemnation or the sacrifice of Christ which brings justification. This is what all of us, this is what you must see if you have ever any hope of the reign of life, eternal life in Christ. You are responsible to shift your allegiance to the one man, Jesus Christ, for the hope that life will reign in your mortal body. That's the contrast that he's giving us here. It's so clear. 
It's so black and white. If you don't respond to this obvious contrast, you will forever remain under the condemnation of death, seeing death reign over your life without the capacity to put it off. And then he gives us a third contrast. We'll call this the contrast between Adam's condemnation and Christ's justification. Look at verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Oh, if the first is speaking of degree, and if the second contrast is speaking of consequence, the third surely is speaking about verdict. Verdict. He's saying if if Adam's trespass led to condemnation for all men, that's the verdict. You see the progression or digression, as it were? You have Adam's sin, and the sin as a consequence brings death. And when death is swallowed up in the judgment, it brings condemnation. You see it? Sin, death, condemnation. Or how about the reverse? Salvation. Salvation. Life. And justification. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. That word made, very, very important. It's talking about the constitution of a person. A person was constitutionally made a sinner in Adam when Adam sinned. It goes right back to verse 12. We were made sinners. We, we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. You see the difference? We are constituted. We are made these sinners in Adam. And as he said in verse 16, Adam's one trespass brought all men into condemnation before God. And so also through the act of righteousness, that's Christ's cross, justification and life were accomplished. And he explains that. Notice that word for. See it in verse 19? For... Here's his explanation. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were constituted sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the work of Christ on the cross, the many will be made righteous, constituted righteous, declared righteous, declared not guilty. Now I know that there are people, and I must say this, there are people who assume that because of the way Paul puts it here in verse 18, that there is, at least in some circles of Christendom, a belief in universalism. Notice verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and we would have no problem believing and teaching that the all men here constitutes every single man, woman, and child in the history of the world without distinction... Some people conclude that the latter part of the verse, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. That means everyone will ultimately be saved. Everyone will ultimately be justified. 
And that's not what Paul is referring to here. Remember, he's talking about two spheres of existence, two realms of life. And what he's saying is, all of those who are in Adam die because of Adam's sin. And that does include everyone because everyone dies. But everybody who is in Christ, under the realm of Christ, have received justification and life for all men. In other words, there are no second-class citizens under the headship of Christ. There's nobody who's going to be in Christ who's not also justified and who's not also been granted eternal life. Everybody in Christ has been justified. You say, but not everybody's in Christ. That's right. And because they're not in Christ, what will be their sentence? Condemnation. And death as a result. Death from sin brings condemnation for all men. And when God is pleased to open the blind eyes, to unstop the deaf ears of a person, spiritually speaking, they respond. You say, is that so? Yes. And we can even give an illustration that that so nails this. You remember in John 11 with Lazarus? He's laying in that tomb. How long had he been dead? How long had he been dead? Four days. You remember even in the text of John 11, it says that Jesus delayed his coming to Lazarus. Why? So that the glory of God would be put on display. And what glory was that? So that at that very moment, Lazarus being dead for four days, Jesus Christ standing at the opening of that tomb, and what does he say to Lazarus? Lazarus, come forth! Now let me ask you a question. How can that happen? How can a dead man respond? He's dead. He's got those wraps around him. He can't respond. He's dead. Try that sometime. You try that sometime. You talk to a dead person. See how far you get. Yell to them. Yell their name and say, come forth. What's going to happen? Absolutely nothing. The power of the gospel is such that Jesus Christ whether he's talking to Lazarus from a physical dimension or whether he's talking to us from a spiritual dimension, when Jesus Christ, the Lord of all, says, come forth, that's what we do. That's exactly what we do. We respond. We respond to the opening of our ears and eyes. We are given new life. That's why we use that term, born again. It's the idea of the Spirit regenerating us, bringing us anew into new life. That's that's what's going on here. Everybody who is regenerated by the Spirit of God is granted life in Christ. They are declared not guilty. They have their sins assuaged from the wrathful God on the basis of what Christ did on that cross. And whenever it is for you and me, whatever year it was, whatever time frame it was, God, through His Holy Spirit, took us and said, spiritually speaking, come forth. And the grave clothes of death fell off. The reign of death ended at that very point. 
and every single person in whom God brings that life to their dead soul is in Christ. And as Paul says, justification and life come to all of those. That's what he's saying. Don't don't misunderstand his point here. Don't come to the place, as some have done, to say that that verse is teaching that ultimately everybody's going to be saved. Everybody's going to be justified. Everybody is going to be given life. Not so. Not so. The contrast is everybody who's dead in Adam and everybody who's alive in Christ. And then there's a fourth We'll call it the contrast between Moses' law and Christ's grace. He switches from Adam now to Moses. Verse 20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. There's another superlative, all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You say, what's going on there? Why does Paul seemingly, right out of the blue, bring in the idea of the Mosaic law? I mean, he's talking about Adam. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about death in Adam, life in Christ. What's he doing here? Why does he bring this in? Well, it may be that some of the Jews of Paul's day would strenuously object to what Paul's been saying here. And they might say something like this, Paul, wait a minute. We might otherwise agree with you and what you're saying if, here's the big if, if you're speaking of the Gentile world. Uh, But you see, what we have is we have the law of Moses. And I hear what you're saying about all of this death in Adam and all of this life in Christ, life in Messiah. But you see, what I have been receiving as a Jew is something different I've been given the law of God. I've been given the Mosaic legislation. If I follow that, I'm in. I'm okay. That's my remedy for death in Adam. That's my remedy. If I live that legislation, if I live that out in my life, if I'm obedient to that, I'm going to be okay. Christ will accept me. God will accept me. And Paul anticipates that. Notice what he says in verse 30. I'm going to tell you what the law does. It doesn't help you, Jewish person. It actually condemns you. How so? Verse 20. The law came in to increase the trespass. What trespass? Adam's trespass. The law of God was coming into existence, Paul said, not to show you Jews how good you could be, not how you can make it by that, but how you can't make it. You can't do it. And the Jews may have been banking, and surely many of them were. They were banking on the law of Moses to deliver them from Adam's curse. If you read in some of the Jewish literature, they acknowledge Adam's curse. Now, there's not a consensus on what they believe the implications of it are, but they do know, they do believe, they do affirm that Adam's sin affected them in some way. But then here comes the law of Moses. Here it is. Here's my out. Even if you talk to a Jewish person today, you say, especially an Orthodox Jew, what are you banking on? What are you doing? How are you being obedient? How are you going to be right with God? I have the law of Moses. 
I have the law of Moses. I'm being obedient to the law of Moses. I'm doing everything that it tells me to do. You say, well, all right, I just tuned out because I'm not Jewish. I just tuned out. I'm not a Jew. This doesn't relate to me. It doesn't apply to me. Well, it does apply in this sense. If they're trusting in the Mosaic legislation, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in? Trusting in that aisle that you walked down? Trusting in that card that you signed? Trusting in that prayer that you prayed? Trusting in good works? Trusting in your philanthropy, your giving? Trusting in your service, your ministry? What are you trusting in? You see, it, it really does apply. Anything. Specifically here he says the law of Moses. But anything, anything that we're trusting other than Jesus Christ. And how prominent is Christ in this whole passage? Is His name not mentioned so many times? Verse 15, Jesus Christ abounded for many. Jesus Christ, verse 17. The act of one, Jesus Christ, verse 18. Verse 21, Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're trusting in anything other than Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross of Calvary, you're not going to receive this abundant grace. It's not going to come to you. You can't trust in those things. You can't rely on them. You can't put your hope in them. Now, is, is ministry good? Yes. Vital. Crucial. Giving? Yes. Important. Good works of all kinds? Absolutely. Praying prayers? Yes. Doing the things that you know you need to do to be obedient to God? Yes. A thousand times yes. But I don't place my confidence or my trust in those things that those things are what are going to make me right with God. can't trust in those things. So whether you're Jewish or non-Jewish, and that's all of us, either Jews or non-Jews, we cannot be trusting in these things. And he's... He's really giving both the Jew and the Gentile their out. He says, don't look at the Mosaic law as your out. Look at Christ. That's your out. Pray to Christ. Ask Him to save you. Paul says, yes, we're constituted as sinners in Adam. Yes, when the Mosaic law, which came for the Jewish people, it increased the sinfulness of sin. And yes, sin now reigns in the sphere of a death-deserving relationship with God. But praise be to God, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Oh, are your, are your hearts saying inside, grace abounds even in the sin of my own heart. Well, you ought to if you're a believer. Is there no more wonderful verse that says in verse 20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more? And as sin reigned in death, that king, that plague, grace might reign through righteousness that leads not to death, but to eternal life. This is, this is all what it means to be reconciled to God. Hey, he's just working out all the implications of Romans 5, 1 and following. That's what it means to be reconciled to God. 
Are you reconciled to God? You say, how do I do it? Look at chapter 3. Look at chapter 3 as we close. Verse 21. This is how it occurs. This is what you need to do. This is how you can apply this message. Romans 3.21 But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, apart from law-keeping... Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, it's always been God's plan. The righteousness of God through what? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who do what? Believe. That's it. You say, that's it? Don't have to work? Don't have to do all those things? For a Jew, don't have to keep the law? Not for your salvation. Not for your righteousness before God. It's through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How many more times can he say it? Verse 28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And look at chapter 5, verse 1. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Want to have peace with God? God can declare you not guilty of all of your sins, many trespasses, if you place your faith solely in Christ. I want to invite you to do that right now. Bow your heads with me. Father, may these who have assembled here come to the place in their own hearts right now of willingly, excitedly, finally placing their confidence, their trust solely in Christ. Lord, how could we ever assume, how could we ever think that we could be right with You by having both sin in our life and trying to morally reform ourselves. To give any amount of money, to serve in any amount of ways, to be baptized a hundred times, to walk an aisle, to pray this sinner's prayer, None of those things, Lord, bring us one whit closer to You. It is through Christ alone, the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, Lord, I pray for anyone here, especially our young people. Do they have their faith solely in Jesus? Not the faith of their parents. Not the faith of the church. 
but their own conscious commitment of life, the entrusting of their very soul in Christ and what He did on that cross. That He died in the place of sinners, on behalf of sinners, in the stead of sinners, so that we would not need to die ourselves. What a gift. What an unimaginable free gift. I invite you to take that gift right now. Believe on Christ. Trust Him alone so that you might receive eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, for those here who have believed themselves to have already done that, Lord, thank You for the deliverance out of death in Adam and granting us new life in Christ. Oh, Father, energize us for service by Your Spirit so that we might show forth Christ's handiwork in us, created that we might walk in these good works, not so that it secures our salvation, but because of it, as the fruit of it, that we express our love and our gratitude for what Christ has done. Oh, may we love Christ, serve Christ, knowing that the longer we labor in Christ, the more indebted we become to the grace of Christ. Father, thank You for this marvelous chapter. And may we we return to it often to see the clear contrasts between being in Adam and being in Christ. And may we share this message, preach this message, communicate this message to others. May this become a part of our evangelistic strategy to say to people, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Thank you for our beloved brother Paul who has given us this evangelistic teaching so that we might teach it to others. May we live in light of it for the honor and glory of Christ, our Savior and Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.